This episode of Between the Lines has been recorded in extraordinary times. The global pandemic COVID-19 is impacting people in many and varied ways. The effects on all of our lives are immense and diverse, from urban to rural communities, young and old, from different geographic and economic groups. We each are living with different realities of a global crisis. In this episode, IDS Professor Ian Schoons is joined by authors and IDS researchers Melissa Leach, Hayley McGregor and Annie Wilkinson, who have for many years studied the social science of epidemics and the uncertainties that they create for livelihoods, global health systems and issues of equality. Well, welcome to this episode of Between the Lines. My name is Ian Schoons. I'm from the Institute of Development Studies. And we're going to be talking about the social science of pandemics over the next little while. And we've got a group of us who've been working on these themes for some years. So together we're going to have some reflections on the social science of pandemics. And of course, we're all now recording this, sitting in separate places in the midst of a pandemic, the pandemic of coronavirus, of of COVID-19. We want to reflect back on work that that we've been engaged with for some while now, which is reflected in a couple of books. First, the book Avian Influenza, Science, Policy and Politics that uh, I edited and came out in 2010. And also in 2010, the book Epidemics, Science, Governance and Social Justice that uh, Melissa Leach and Sarah Dry co-edited in the same year. And I had a look at both of the books last night and both in different ways, uh, 10 years on, are remarkably prescient and remarkably relevant. And we want to ask some questions about, well, what can we learn from past experiences of disease outbreaks and, uh, and pandemics for the response now in the midst of, of coronavirus hitting the whole world? And especially think about that in relation to marginalized and, and poorer communities around the world. And we also want to ask, what lessons can we draw for the future, preventing future pandemics, and especially those that move from animals to humans, as COVID-19 did, and as others have, uh, which, are, which cause zoonoses. So before passing on to, uh, to the others, I want to just introduce a little bit on, on the avian flu book, and then we'll cast it more broadly to think about epidemics more generally and some other cases. So this book was done with colleagues um, in Cambodia, in Indonesia, and in Thailand, and Vietnam, in research that started in 2007, soon after the major outbreak of avian influenza, which which kicked off uh, in 2004-05. And what we were interested in looking at is the, the sort of set of international and national responses to a major disease outbreak. Now, very luckily, the avian influenza in Southeast Asia and it spread elsewhere, of course, uh, the human mortalities were actually very small. It didn't spread very well between humans, luckily, unlike COVID-19 does. But there were some major fears that this was going to be the big one. Epidemiologists, global health experts often talk about the big one and very often think about the specter of the 1918 influenza pandemic that killed perhaps up to 100 million people across the world. And even in 
the 2000s, there were people talking about, you know, potentially 150 million people were going to, could potentially die from this pandemic if it started to spread. Now, as I say, this luckily didn't happen, but I was struck by the last sentence in the book uh, when I looked at it. I urged then we need to waste no time in addressing the challenges of the responses that, that were identified in the book. So what happened in the, in the intervening years since the publication of the book? Did we learn those lessons? Well, I think probably not. Uh, and that's why we are where we are in 2020. So before passing on to the others, just let me highlight a few things that were concluded in the book. First, we reflected on the fact that people and policymakers and others only wake up to the issue of disease dynamics uh, when there's an outbreak. It tends to be projected in this wider discourse around, uh, around outbreaks. But actually these diseases, uh, avian influenza, coronaviruses, circulate in wild and domestic populations of animals and jump to humans on a regular basis. And we really do need to understand these conditions. And that's the case as much as it is for flu as it is for coronaviruses. But of course, the outbreaks and particularly the transfer to humans only happen under certain conditions. So for avian flu, it was under the conditions of the emergence of medium scale, uh, intensive poultry production in relatively unhygienic conditions in industrializing countries in Southeast Asia. There was a big political economy of food and agribusiness that provoked the, the outbreak. And of course, COVID-19 has issues of that political economy. A different dynamic moving from wet markets in crowded urban centers in East Asia, but Similarly, uh, those questions are raised yet again. We raise questions in the book about livelihoods, about equity and access, and also to think hard about how disease control affects the poorest and the most marginalized. In the case of avian influenza, this was about slaughtering en masse chickens, uh, largely owned by poor people, so-called backyard chicken farmers, who weren't actually you know, primarily the problem. And the responses to COVID, again, raising questions of who gets affected, the effects of quarantining on the poor, for example. We raise questions about uncertainty and surprise. We don't know when things are going to happen. You have to be ready. You have to adapt. And we saw that in the avian influenza story. Yet there were these models, and again, the, the parallels with COVID are fairly, fairly clear, models that predicted a particular set of outcomes. We cannot predict when uncertainty dominates. We raise questions about organizational reliability. How do health systems respond to sudden shocks like that? How do you create redundancy? How do you create capacity? How do you mix disciplines that can respond to these things? We were talking back then about the importance of linking veterinary services and health services with ecologists around what became known as the One Health Agenda, just as relevant to COVID-19. And we highlighted also the importance of local innovation. Very often the top-down measures that were imposed during the avian influenza outbreaks didn't result in 
in, the, in, in what was planned. Actually, it was what local people did, community collaboration, um, forms of cultural repertoires that were incorporated into how people responded, forms of collective action and innovation. So all those themes that are in the end of the book, in the conclusion around a, a sort of plan for the future, apply now. And I think one of the big questions that we have to, to ask is why didn't we learn from the avian influenza episode and the SARS episode and indeed the Ebola episodes that we will talk about in a minute. So I want to hand on now uh, to Melissa, who as I said was a co-editor of the Epidemic Science, Governance and Social Justice book uh, with Sarah Dry. Uh, to give a, a bit of an overview, because there were many overlaps. We were thinking about these things together at the time. So, Melissa, over to you. Ian, thank you very much. So, this book was also written a decade ago at a very particular moment. And what we did was to take case studies of a number of emerging and re-emerging diseases. Um, and they were Ebola, Lassa fever, SARS, HIV AIDS, influenza, and there was actually a chapter on avian flu in the book multi-drug resistant TB and as something of a contrast, obesity. And we looked at a range of settings and they varied from those in West Africa and South Africa to China to Egypt and some European settings, together with global reflections. And again, in looking back at the book, I find it really interesting to see what has changed and what hasn't. Um, and that's what I want just to talk about briefly now. So at the time we wrote this book, um, it was very much, we were in a world that was attuned to the fear of global outbreaks. So we had just had avian flu, which was feared to be going to be the big one, as Ian has outlined. But there'd also been SARS, the first SARS in 2003. And then most recently in June 2009, the World Health Organization had declared a global pandemic of H1N1, the so-called swine flu. And as we said in writing the book, swine flu may be the latest pandemic to be hitting the headlines, but it's not the first and it will not be the last. And now we're in the middle of another. In that context of repeated um, globally relevant outbreaks, we'd seen epidemic threats become a really big focus for global health policy, often framed as health security. And the start of a kind of big architecture of preparedness and response which um, linked the international health regulations founded in 2005 with systems of centralized planning, modeling and prediction capacity, surveillance systems, rapid response teams, which were due to sort of would be launched and go out to deal with the latest outbreak, as well as drug and vaccine research and development. And what we sort of looked at in the book um, was how this investment, even at that time, was being driven by a kind of global outbreak narrative. And this idea of narratives and storylines was very much a framing we took up in the book. And the global outbreak narrative went a bit like this. We have diseases which emerge, often in remote, out-of-the-way places, sometimes in Africa, sometimes in Asia, sometimes in Southeast Asia. And they spread rapidly in a world of highly mobile people and microbes, a world of air travel, a world where people are moving around to affect the world and in particular centers of power. And um, this was a narrative that at that time was hitting the headlines as it did with avian flu and then with swine flu and was often popularized in popular media. So we'd had Hollywood films outbreak and others and then a little bit later contagion 
And of course, our book was written before the 2014 to 16 West African Ebola outbreak, which in many ways typified that narrative. Here we have a zoonotic spillover event allegedly happening in a village in the tri-border zone in, in Guinea, Sierra Leone, Liberia, which then spread very rapidly to hit a region of West Africa. And then, so the fear went, it would hit the world. And it was only at that point that, that global agencies really jumped in and responded. But what we tried to do in this book was go beyond that outbreak narrative and the pathways of disease and response that it was putting into place and ask some harder questions about what was missing and what alternative narratives might be out there, revealing some important but sometimes hidden dimensions which we suggested needed more attention. Um, and what we found, and looking back on the book, was that the alternative narratives that we, we identified around those case studies became, first of all, absolutely crucial in that West African Ebola outbreak, and then are also absolutely crucial today around COVID-19. So what were some of these alternatives? So I think a first um, was about complex systems and unpredictability. The fact that in these, these meshes of microbes, animals, ecologies, people, they're going to be co-evolving in ways that, yes, do have some long-term structural dynamics that, that affect them. But also that very nature of complexity creates the potential for unpredictable, sometimes black swan events. So we may know that we've got conditions going on which are going to lead possibly to zoonotic spillover in wet markets in South Asia or to people coming into contact with bats in the forests of Guinea, um, which could lead to a spillover to people. But actually, when exactly that happens is not easily predictable. And that's why we need to be prepared. And we need approaches to modeling and preparedness and response that are more adaptive. So a second narrative was one that was not the global outbreak, but a much more locally developmental model, which said that outbreaks matter because they're affecting the health and the livelihoods of people locally. And indeed, they're going to play out in ways that are very much affected by and affect those social contexts. In the case of Ebola, as we saw in, in, in West Africa, the context in which the outbreak emerged and spread so fast was one of post-conflict situations, of weak health systems, and moreover, a lack of trust between people and the state. Um, and it was only when those issues began to be addressed and we began to see a, a, a model that, that um, was more attuned to that context that things began to turn. So a third narrative we explored in the book was around the importance of bottom-up responses and particularly those embedded in what we called cultural logics, local cultural logics, which often involved experiential knowledges, ways of understanding disease that didn't easily match global science necessarily, but were based in people's ways of living with ecologies, ways of living with each other and with the world, and which often drove pathways of response which proved important and effective. And again, we saw this clearly in the West African Ebola outbreak, where a myriad of community actions and adaptations framed by local understandings helped people to adapt their care practices, their burial practices, their quarantine practices, to balance risk of infection against other socio-cultural needs. Actions that ended up being quite key in turning that epidemic around, and which suggest that into the future we need to take them seriously and build preparedness and response from below as well as from above. 
And I think all of those insights are proving really relevant now for COVID-19, as we can explore further in conversation. But there were actually just briefly three further cross-cutting themes that emerged from all the cases in the book that I'd just like briefly to, to reiterate, because these again are improving importance important now. The first was that in constructing disease and response in particular ways, the narratives we looked at also construct people and social groups. They create categories, they label heroes and villains, they assign responsibility and blame. And they do that in ways that often interplay with prior anxieties. This was very much part of the outbreak narrative, that idea that things emerge from hotspots in poor places and affect centers of power. Although I think COVID-19 really interestingly reverses that narrative because of course it's Europe that is now the hotspot and um, the cases that are now beginning to emerge in African contexts are mostly coming from Europe. That's a really interesting reversal. But we're also seeing, for instance, in African discourses about COVID-19, a certain amount of stigmatization and anxiety about the Chinese, shaped by pre-existing worries about economic domination, the Belt and Road Initiative, the uneven gains for infrastructure projects, only partly counteracted by the, the enormous help that the Chinese offered with the Ebola outbreak. In COVID-19, I think we're seeing similar, often scapegoating of groups, of sometimes of minority populations, some stereotyping of heroes and villains. In the UK at the moment, we're seeing the, the heroification of NHS workers, quite rightly, versus the irresponsible people disobeying lockdowns. Now, there's not to say that there's not some truth in those stereotypes, but we need to be very careful about them to make sure that they, they are sufficiently nuanced and that they don't create and perpetuate stigma and discrimination. And I think one thing that really has changed in the decades since we wrote the last book is the way these narratives become, and these stigma, forms of stigma, become amplified on social media and can spread very rapidly. The second big cross-cutting theme is that narratives interplay with each other. They overlap, but the ways in which they do that are very much shaped by politics and by power. And we're seeing this now in COVID-19, where we've got contestation over science, over the response, over economy, over economic effects. And we've got local politics in countries and localities and global geopolitics, China and the US being an example. As we argued in the book, and as I think is really clear now, we actually need to make those politics explicit, interrogate them and challenge them in a way which I think can inform a more deliberative approach to disease response. And a final theme, I think we have to um, recall that this, like the avian flu book, um, was, was, came from social scientists. And in a way, both these books represented a fairly early set of social science contributions to a field that was then dominated by epidemiology, by medicine, by epidemiological modeling, by technical sciences. And so they were outliers as books. In some respects, I think the West African Ebola outbreak was a real game changer. It was recognized globally as such. Several of us here were involved in the Ebola Response Anthropology Platform. The UN Special Envoy for Ebola, um, David Nabarro, talked about how important that set of responses had been. The UK Science Advisory Group on Emergencies for Ebola involved social scientists within it. Um, and in the aftermath, many of the reviews of the lessons learned from Ebola emphasize the importance of social science and say that into the future, we need to have social science expertise as part of our responses. Yet, 
we've seen a fairly limited way of taking that forward. So yes, we've seen new platforms funded. We're running one of them in the Social Science in Humanitarian Action platform. And there's interest in having social scientists as part of WHO response groups, for instance. But what we've also seen is that interest is too easily, very sharply narrowed to quite operational inputs to risk communication to community engagement. There's rather little interest still in the diverse expertises of social science in strategic planning, in the design of responses. And we've seen this in the UK really recently. The Science Advisory Group on Emergencies for COVID-19 has had really limited social science engagement, limited to some behavioural science and nudge theorists. So I think there is a lesson, I think there is a question about what social sciences could and should be bringing to the COVID-19 response. I think these earlier books began to highlight some of those. And I think we can go much further now in this conversation in thinking about what social science could and should be bringing. So that poses some questions now to pass on to, to Haley um, to think a little bit more about how to think through what social science can contribute, particularly around these questions of unpredictability, uncertainty, and how that relates to questions of vulnerability. Thank you, Ian. Um, I want to reflect on those issues. And then finally, I want to actually come um, and reflect back on the chapter I wrote for the epidemics book, which was, was actually on, on HIV and to pick up this idea of, of lessons learned, this, this theme that, that you and Melissa have, have started to explore. And I, I should say, I was actually speaking last night to Sarah Dry, who said to me that the one thing historians would say is that lessons are never learned. So <laughs> with that in mind, I'll, I'll share my reflections. But firstly, just to reflect a little bit on the current situation and to pick up on, on Melissa's points about um, this growing interest in social science um, engagement in this space of epidemics, but also the caveats there of, of the sort of more, more narrow instrumentalized um, uptake of, of social science. And of course, we've seen that very much with, um, with again, with um, COVID-19 and the, the struggle to really contribute and shift away from quite narrow um, understandings of evidence. And um, as you said, Ian, there's, of course, enormous uncertainty that emerges alongside these um, viruses, that, that these novel viruses that come from across from animals. And, of course, that uncertainty manifests very much in the scientific evidence base. So um, at the same time as these WHO preparedness and roadmap initiatives really emphasize the need to have evidence-based responses, that evidence base itself is, is emergent and, and shifting, and this is often not acknowledged by the scientists themselves. At the same time, of course, there's, there's a lot of an uncertainty also on the, on the social side that, that isn't acknowledged, and this point, point that Melissa made beautifully about epidemics also as, as a social phenomenon, preparedness also as social and political um, processes and we've seen this very much with um, COVID-19 which has provided this kind of awful um, set of case studies of how um, an epidemic unfolds in different contexts, different political, social, cultural, religious um, contexts. 
and of course we ignore this this at our peril so we um, in our work have particularly emphasized this uncertainty of social context and social response and indeed this idea of of um, social context is another form of uncertainty has entered into the consciousness of policymakers but as Melissa was saying this is often narrowed down to very a very operational lens very much focused on human behavior risk communication and so forth and we in our work particularly in the, the um, social science and humanitarian action platform try to emphasize that these are, are much bigger issues also written rooted in the political economy and histories of disease and different healthcare systems and so forth and that's really again the the point that we see with, with COVID. And in that regard, of course, um, again, we see this, this point where um, there's been a heavy reliance on modeling and, and this idea of, of prediction. Um, and we've seen, again, the, the sort of lack of diversity of expertise in, in trying to think through policy responses um, to COVID. And of course, we um, are looking also at sort of, of these questions around what the assumptions are, and particularly in in the um, COVID nineteen models, we've we've seen um, the fact that these models make assumptions about what it's it's necessary to count or not. They make um, assumptions about social responses and people's behaviour. In the UK, we've seen a reliance on on behavioral evidence that that um, hasn't been very clear so we've seen models missing um, social issues um, but uh, equally we, we are arguing social science can nuance the models but they can also really um, raise these issues around unintended consequences of, of um, interventions and and the gaps between these assumptions and social realities on the ground but also how um, epidemics play out um, and all in all, this is, is very much the argument that we need to keep making in the current context. But I want to turn now a little bit to other um, contexts because these arguments are really important to make there too. And one of the questions, I guess, is, is what are, are these modelers as they turn their attention also to the, the global outbreaks in other contexts? What would, be, what would models have to say, for example, about the scenario in Africa with respect to COVID-19 and I want to speak briefly about that before I get to my HIV case study which was based in, in um, South Africa um, for the epidemics book. So um, what would be the scenario in Africa? We've got um, health systems that are, that are very weak, we've got a lack of universal access to healthcare, many countries without social protection and of course, we've got um, competing um, outbreaks in, in many countries. We've got some countries still recovering from Ebola with, with that sort of history, and in some cases, um, real trauma still amongst healthcare workers around, around um, that outbreak. But we also have ongoing outbreaks, such as of, of yellow fever or Lassa fever. And of course, in in countries, we also have these long-standing disease burdens, for example, um, HIV, which of course was an, uh, an epidemic that started gripping the continent in, in the 1980s, also originally thought to have been um, zoonotic. And, and in an African setting, we, we have these, these comorbidities that, have, that will mean that the disease will unfold in different ways, even in, in the biological sense, but this also, of course, has, has um, interesting and, and 
worrying health systems in we have situations where um for example um antiretrovirals are are supplies are essential to people in those settings so that this important point that sometimes gets made about the secondary impacts and deaths from COVID will become very important because if, if there's a disruption of supply of medication to people or people are afraid to go to healthcare centers, that will have significant implications. And as if people stop, stop, stop taking their medication or they no longer have access, that really will create a very um, immunocompromised population um, in an African setting. We also see at the moment um, many antiretrovirals, in fact, being trialed for treatment of COVID in China. There were reports of people who were HIV positive selling their antiretrovirals to, to others who were afraid of COVID, so people putting their own lives at risk because of um, economic need. And, and this would be another sort of concern in an in a African setting. And of course, as, as we, we um, also saw in, in the epidemics book, we have different actors framing this, the, the outbreak and the problem in, in very many different ways and different understandings of, of preparedness and more attention to this more top-down um, kind of preparedness. And of course, um, in some countries, there's been there've been calls, quite long-standing calls, for more health system strengthening. And this is now the kind of lack of attention to this, of course, is now really going to come to the fore. And we're going to see healthcare and social and economic inequalities in African settings that are going to be laid there um, in stark ways. And um, for example, just around livelihoods and the link to HIV, one is hearing in certain African countries of situations where commercial sex workers, for example, no longer have um, as many clients and therefore pressure for them to engage in unsafe sex and putting themselves at risk of HIV. So there are these complex interconnections in these different um, vulnerabilities. There's also a lot of attention at the moment in this country to the sort of terror of, of a more pragmatic kind of care emerging as resources become limited, even in a, a high income setting like the UK, concerns about triage, issues of practical ethics, concerns from healthcare workers about lack of protection. Um, and indeed, um, this is, is going to be writ large in, in African settings and, and um, particularly in, in contexts like Sierra Leone, where healthcare workers already have low trust in government and government promises to, to protect them or provide um, various measures and insurance against their, themselves contracting um, disease. So just to, to think more specifically to the chapter that I wrote in the epidemics book, which focused on, on HIV this in, in 2010 when this book came out, um, HIV had already shifted from sort of the initial um, understanding, which had been high uncertainty um, in the late 1980s, a lot of contestation around the emergence of this disease. And HIV is often thought of as, as the disease that really brought in the era of global health that emphasized that these organisms do not respect national boundaries. So shift from a focus on health as, as national or even international to the idea of global health and a real rise in big global health initiatives um, 
and also the, the, the real strengthening of that surveillance counting metrical approach to global health that we're, we're still seeing so dominant um, today. So initially there was that uncertainty. This was my own first encounter with HIV as a medical student in South Africa in the 1990s, a lot of fear at that stage, a fatal disease, lack of treatment beyond supportive care, very much the scenario we, we see now um, with, with a lot of fear around um, COVID. And in the book, I focused on the way, particularly in which HIV had, um, through the 1990s and the early 2000s, been framed as a, as, a, as a big global health security um, issue and requiring exceptional um, responses. And I was looking particularly also at, at the rights-based framing and activists who'd come to, to mobilize, particularly for the right to treatment for HIV. And in that chapter, I looked at the trade-offs that arise when, when these discourses of rights, but also discourses of individual responsibility that linked to the enormous stigma that this disease carried and the kind of blame that attached to, to, to people um, who, who contracted it and, and the way in which the stigma had, had made confidentiality and, con confidentiality and consent key issues for um, the HIV response. Um, another background point that of course is really relevant to COVID is that, that um, in South Africa certainly HIV provided a, a sort of awful example of, of the importance of timely response and high-level political um, will and the slow response in South Africa of course meant that the epidemic really laid bare social, economic and healthcare inequalities that had historically been extremely intense. And um, this meant that the big drive globally for universal access to ARVs became particularly important in, in African healthcare contexts. And by the time I wrote, wrote the chapter, there was a lot of debate around the an exceptional response to HIV that had garnered a lot of resources and a vertical response and other people who were saying we need health system strengthening, we need more horizontal responses, we mustn't ignore other um, conditions and of course that debate is going to become very, very important again. And finally, of course, um, the chapter that I wrote was actually about um, counselling and community-based counsellors and I guess that's the the more positive lesson that can be learned from the HIV response because um, in, in South Africa where, where that chapter was based, there'd actually been a decline in interest, particularly in, in state-supported community-level, community-based healthcare programs in the late 1990s. And with this influx of funding targeted towards HIV, there was a real resurgence of, of state-supported community health worker programs, community lay counsellors um, for HIV and of course there was also a huge um, rise in community-based organisations and, and local level um, action and as antiretrovirals were, became available and, and HIV became more of a chronic condition and discourses around the disease shifted, this community level action became extremely important and particularly home-based care and of course that's going to be a huge debate with COVID-19 in African settings, how much um, care can be done at a, a community level. And then, of course, there were issues around rights of healthcare workers and protection for healthcare workers. And, and that, again, is, is, a, is going to be a key debate in these settings. And finally, these 
tensions that I try to bring out in that chapter around rights and responsibilities in healthcare and the moral discourses of blame and, and trade-offs. So those were very complex, very divisive issues. And of course, um, we're seeing that again. And just the, the point with HIV, this positive lesson of HIV, even though it was very difficult and certainly not perfect, but it was one of global solidarity. And, and now, of course, there's even more, more need than ever for that kind of global solidarity and coordination to make sure that everybody in all countries get access to the, the global public goods that are going to help us also um, respond to COVID-19 so that, that everybody gets access to testing, treatment, and the vaccines that we're, we're racing to develop. So those would be my reflections looking back on that chapter. Thank you very much, Hayley. And, and obviously those links to that HIV AIDS story are absolutely pertinent. But let's turn now to, to Annie. Um, to pick up some of these debates about how a disease outbreak emerges and relates to cultural community contexts. And you've worked a lot on, in West Africa on the Ebola story. So maybe you can give some reflections on that particular issue. Yeah, I think actually picking up on that, one of the things that is striking about COVID-19 and West Africa is in some senses how similar some of the issues are, I think lots of people living, beginning to live through societal kind of breakdown and shutdown in the West, the kind of feeling that, you know, this is unprecedented, but actually there, ha there are three countries at least that experienced this level of disruption for one to two years. West Africa was a kind of a real eye-opener. It wasn't the beginning of social science and epidemics by any means, but in, but in some ways it was where it became so apparent how important it was. And there were big lessons about the importance of community-led, of enabling community-led responses. And again, we saw we had, as with now, we have we had models predicting millions of cases or potentially millions of cases, which actually didn't end up thankfully coming about, partly because there was this kind of huge community behavior change, kind of collective action. And, and you know, we saw that in the in both villages and towns, there was local kind of task forces often arranged by um, traditional chieftaincy structures but sometimes sometimes not sometimes explicitly against them also in urban areas we had sometimes responses being led by gangs um, kind of doing community patrols so a real kind of variation but definitely you know in whatever form it took it was yeah a huge amount of kind of bottom-up local organization the other thing that we learned was that any control intervention that was guided by biomedical rationales had to be balanced with social, political, economic, and spiritual rationales and concerns. And that early on in the Ebola outbreak, they were getting that, you know, things were being done very rigidly along what was deemed to be kind of biomedically required and biomedically safe. And those other concerns were not being, were, were kind of excluded and there was backlash against that. And, and I think that's, you know, that is similar to what we're seeing again, potentially now we've got the kind of, again, the models predicting all of these things and all of these high caseloads and high burdens of disease and death. And they're explicitly not considering social dynamics. And as Haley and all of you have kind of outlined, there's this huge area of uncertainty as, as to how kind of social responses will unfold in different places. And we are seeing, you know, at least in my street, we have a WhatsApp group, we have there was discussion about kind of a signage system to say if you needed help or if you were self-isolating. There's 
all sorts of kind of online support groups. One thing I wanted to kind of pick up on was as we've been doing all of this research on preparedness, um, we've been kind of tracking some of the post Ebola kind of investments in preparedness and reform and what that has often looked like in African settings that we've been working in. There has been the creation of the African CDC. There has been emergency operation centers or centers for disease control set up in different countries. And there's been a huge investment in field epidemiology and surveillance and, and a lot of investment in also into kind of coordination. But it strikes me now that that kind of model of preparedness was rather set up on a kind of an Ebola-like disease, which is often the case of the lessons that get learned are the lessons from just the previous disease. And if you look at kind of what is happening now, where you have actually in African settings, the risk is coming in, disease is brought in by outsiders, mostly potentially kind of wealthy foreigners <laughs> or wealthy members of the, of the countries coming in via the airport. It's not something that's arising in a village in, in a, yeah, a forest region or a village. Um, it's not something that having your kind of rapid response field epidemiology team go in and investigate is, is necessarily the thing that needs to happen. So there's, there's been this whole kind of infrastructure based on preparedness potentially around a, a, a particular kind of disease, which is, which is quite different to what we're seeing now. So as well about kind of it being brought in to, via airports and things, there's a lot of concern about cities and spread in cities. And we have been working just now on a, collecting kind of ideas about how to actually mount a response in cities in lower middle income countries, but in particularly in informal settlements where actually in some, city, in some countries you have the majority of urban residents are living in informal settlements or what is some kind of called slums, which are characterized by high population density, very limited access to water and sanitation. And so all of those, the advice that people are being given about what to you know, to do to socially distance and to wash hands is the feasibility of that is, is um, it, well, it's much harder to see how those kind of principles would actually apply in these kind of settings. But similarly, what we've been discussing is that there's a huge amount of um, local expertise in terms of community groups that have been organizing to actually provide or advocate for those basic services in urban centers that they've been missing that have been really, really kind of well actually tapped into development and local government forums. So collecting their own kind of data about who lives in these settlements and what services they have access to. So they're perfectly positioned to mount a response. But actually it strikes me that they have not been very well connected to that public health infrastructure that has been developing around the kind of emergency operations centers, which has been very much happening in kind of within ministries of health and not really connected to that the kind of the local government infrastructure. So in just an interesting thing there about different kinds of diseases and the way we've been anticipating what this disease X will be. Another, another kind of reflection, I think, from Ebola, the, so the lessons afterwards were always like we should have paid more attention to complexity or to communities, but actually when it comes to the actual response, whether it's the kind of emergency mentality or the politics of evidence, which mean that we instinctively get drawn back to models which give us kind of solid numbers, I think a question we've been grappling with for the last few years actually is like how do you actually operationalize this kind of social science knowledge and these social science questions about complexity in a response how do we harness that diversity that we have pointed out is so important in the middle of an outbreak and 
you know, and actually, is it going to happen anyway? So if, if the kind of uncertainty and diversity is, unfolds anyway, how do we enable the response to make use of that? Thank you, Annie. Um, so I think all of these contributions have highlighted that, you know, the, the broad social science understanding of, uh, of, of diseases and outbreaks is increasing. Yet, and we've kept say, saying it, the lessons aren't necessarily learned. So uh, taking, taking the, uh, the argument um, seriously of, of the historian that lessons are never learned or that lessons are only learned to the last thing, I mean, I want to pose to all of us, okay, so here we are in the midst of a, a pandemic. What are some of the things that we really, from this body of research now going back 10, 10 years, 15 years, uh, and certainly people before us, have raised all these, these things. Complexity is important. Adaptation is important. Community-based bottom-up processes are important. Culture is important. So we know all of this. So why is it that still in 2020, in the midst of a pandemic, whether in the UK or in Africa, these very basic, basic understandings I mean, you know, we wrote about them in quite long books, but there are some fairly basic understandings. Why aren't they being taken up? So I'm going I'm to turn to Melissa. She's got a couple of reflections on why and what we need actually as a social science community, rather than just continuing to write long books, that we actually need to do now to make a change. And indeed now in the next weeks, in fact, to make a change. Well... I think there are several things going on here. I think there um, are established bureaucratic routines, and in a way this happens internationally and nationally, which have embedded certain ways of thinking and ways of doing things and, and are supportive of certain kinds of science. Um, and those prove very difficult to challenge as they are being for, for COVID. And I think there's also a sort of hierarchy of kinds of knowledge. So everybody talks about science-based responses, evidence-based responses, but some kinds of evidence are seen to count much more strongly with scientific advisory bodies than are others. And this is actually something we wrote about in another book, which was part of this triad coming a little bit later, around One Health and um, in the context of zoonotic diseases, the argument that actually we need to be bringing together medical, veterinary, environmental, and social science knowledge to, to react to, to, to problems. And there, um, as we argued in, in that book on the politics of One Health, it was still the medical knowledge that, that overrode, that sat at the, at the top of the, of the pile, as it were. Um, often in that case, pushing out the vets who had other things to say about animal science and livestock systems and their importance. And, and I think the, the hierarchies of science in the global response nationally very much have modelling and epidemiology at the top, along with the push to vaccine and drug development. Um, which are, of course, critical. And yes, um, COVID will be turned around when we can get a vaccine, but that's going to be a long time. Um, and in the meantime, I think we all still have to keep pushing for the importance of a wider analytic that actually brings in the social. And this is critical to decision-making because as our discussion's been suggesting, your epidemiological models will stand or fall on the social assumptions they're making. And if you get those assumptions wrong, 
so for instance in the UK there have been assumptions in the models that people could not social distance for long enough to make it sensible to bring in social distancing policies early. Well that's a social assumption and yet it was not being driven at the time that it was made by any social science evidence and we need to bring it to the fore. So I think it's a push for social science to be part of strategy at the highest levels. And then there is a role for rapid response, for actually having social scientists, anthropologists, but also historians, political scientists, sociologists, as part of operational teams or informing them in a virtual way in real time. And this is what the Ebola Response Anthropology Platform did quite effectively. This is what we're trying to do now with the Social Science and Humanitarian Action Platform, providing an iterative function where those at the operational front line or the public health front line are able to, to turn back to what they're seeing as feedback from communities, from people as they themselves adapt and to build a more iterative kind of real-time response. So I think there's, there's two big roles there and we have to keep pushing this, frankly. Great, I, I, I thoroughly agree. I mean, the, the nature of opening up science advice, we've been talking about this for a long time, whether it's about diseases or anything else. Uh, but as you say, the, the cultures of science advice and the, the, the institutionalized basis of it often excludes rather than includes. But actually in times like this, where uncertainty is the dominant feature, plural advice um, and, and iterating, as you say, between different understandings from different settings is absolutely crucial. Mm. And Melissa, earlier on, you talked about the, as it were, the architecture of response, a sort of bigger picture mm. story of, of how global national systems coordinate. I'm wondering, Haley, if you had any reflections on that, particularly out of the HIV AIDS experience, which of course created a, a global archit architecture for response um, with, with problems there, but, but maybe there are some lessons there as well, which we can learn about thinking about global responses to, to diseases. I mean, just to link it to, to, to what Melissa just said, I think um, there's been this elaboration of, of a global architecture and, and um, you know, sitting in the midst of a pandemic, many of us are, are also feeling you know, it's important to have um, strong response testing, containment, these sort of basic public health things. But I think the problems come when there is this this, you know, emphasis, as Melissa said, on particular kinds of knowledge, um, a, a sort of real concern about um, uncertainty in the sense of wanting to contain it. And, and um, I think one of the issues is that, that complexity is, a, is understood and approached in, in different ways by the, those who are interested in a very particular view of, of science and social science is seen as, as um, complexifying rather than helping to understand um, complexity. And in that regard, we see this interest in behavioral change and um, these, these global architectures of response engaging with people or, or so-called communities in, in ways that, that are very top-down as well, that, that sort of, um, take a, a deficit model kind of understanding and, and it's about information, education, communication and I think um, there's been a lot less about trusting people and their knowledge um, and experience and um, 
moving to what what some people have called a sort of people-centered kind of of preparedness response that that enables the this top down to be complemented by a bottom up but in a, a respectful equal way and i think we we should also be pushing for for that kind of understanding at whatever language we use be it people centered some organizations are, are linking it to ethics having a more sort of ethical ethical equal engagement um with um people so so that i think becomes important and then um Finally, I think in these these debates, in these architectures, in these pillars of response, to not only see them as the domain of of quote unquote hard scientists that can contribute to a particular kind of of evidence base, but also um, involving social scientists in framing the response and dealing with these huge political, ethical, economic trade-offs that have become so evident. And in the UK, we seen you know huge ethical huge biopolitical questions around the response and yet those are, are are tend to be framed in this kind of neutral language of evidence-based science so they so we social scientists need to be involved also in that high level planning rather than just in the, the sort of adding context so i think we've moved to a place where social science input is invited in in briefings and kind of adding texture and detail of, of social context, often with an emphasis on, on how will people behave, what are their beliefs, how can we shift those? And we really, I think, need to sort of make a big effort to say context is important. We It's important to understand that, but social scientists also can really help think through these bigger issues of, of framing and, and bringing a wider range of, of perspectives. So I think this is really talking about a kind of, of architecture for response that is yes top down in some respects but complemented also by a very different kind of, of way of operating all the lessons that we've we've examined over the years have have pointed to exactly that yet we have the who we have the advisory groups on emergencies we have the whole systems which, which as you said, has, are embedded in a particular set of power relations and disciplinary relations which are not, uh, do not seem at the moment to be open to, to a wider debate. But maybe actually in the end, a lot of the responses uh, do emerge from, from the bottom up. As we saw in so many of the cases, the big predictions of the disasters that were potentially there if nothing was done, the key assumption, didn't turn out to be, to be the case. So I'm wondering, Annie, in reflecting on, as it were, community responses, you talked about your own street, you've talked about what happens in villages in Sierra Leone. I mean, is this where we have to look as well at combining with these broader public health responses to really capture the type of innovations? Because presumably the people in your street weren't told by anyone to put together a WhatsApp group. It happened. Yeah, I think lots of them just kind of emerge. Um, and it might be predictable that they will emerge, but it's also unpredictable in terms of how, what form they'll take and how, and how each specific one will, will um, come into being. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... A real challenge, though, particularly with COVID-19 at the moment, for example, like my street can 
organize online and all of those kind of things because we all have access to to all the kind of media platforms that might not be the case for people in African kind of rural or urban settings that uh, have access in terms of kind of this online organization I think that's one of the big challenges for COVID is that the lesson from Ebola and from countless other kind of emergencies and public health crises is that you need to do um, you know deep in-depth intensive community engagement and that that kind of organizing happens slowly in in face-to-face contact um building up those relationships of trust that have often been lacking and the conundrum now is that that's potentially not possible or not possible to the same extent i i'm struck also again to go back to the kind of cities and the informal settlement example that one of the big problems there is that that whilst in some settings you have huge amounts of data actually of who lives like census data survey data research data all of this stuff that is being fed into the models that lots of countries are relying on that is completely absent in lots of countries and particularly in in some of the kind of higher risk environments i.e these these crowded informal settlements there's no people actually do not know how many people live there they don't have a good understanding of the health system and what kind of providers are, are there the risk then is that when you have such levels of uncertainty then the kind of responses that you might take either being based on what's being applied elsewhere for example the lockdowns that everyone is is doing um or based on kind of ideas that these are these are kind of frenzied dirty unhygienic environments that just need to be contained um that there'll be yeah these these kind of top-down blanket kind of control measures applied to settings that are highly highly vulnerable and about yeah which we really just and and they're applied in a way because because and the problem is that we the governments or kind of agencies working in those areas do not know enough about the people that live there and 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 they do not know enough about the kind of responses that would be appropriate in those environments but already it's there's there is a lot of kind of evidence of local responses emerging in even in these kind of settings whether it is kind of bringing trying to kind of rapidly increase um access to kind of hand to to water and hygiene or trying to begin to think through how you could actually do social distancing in those kind of spaces or how you protect for example the workers who cannot stay at home and who actually perform essential services for the rest of the city like kind of waste collection and things like that so making sure that they're protected so they're not exposed and they're able to continue working great well thank you i mean i think you've made a really important point that you know, we've been critical of, of the, the medical science and the epidemiology of having a one-size-fits-all solution, but equally social science mustn't either. We must think about social difference. We must mm. think about the difference between rural and urban, between men and women, between rich and poor, between young and old. And I think the, uh, the importance of, of thinking locally, but also globally as well, about the bigger architectures is to be able to articulate the two. And I think that's where, as as Melissa and Haley also have said, where social science can come in, not only in that textured understanding of localities and specificities and social difference, but also in understanding the broader political economy, the broader strategic questions that emerge in any thinking about disease management and pandemics. So I think at that moment, we're going to wrap up and thank all participants for a very interesting discussion. And uh, yeah, we will continue the debate. So thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.
Thanks for listening. For links to everything discussed, please see the episode notes. If you have feedback and suggestions for upcoming episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at betweenthelines at ids.ac.uk and on Twitter, hashtag IDS between the lines.